Welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer with your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network. Hello, welcome back to another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law. I have with me Ellie Mistal. How are you? Hey, what's going on? You know, I mean, law stuff. Yeah, there's kind of always law stuff going on just at the moment in America. I mean, yeah, okay. That's not what I'm angry about, though. I'm not angry. I'm. I. It's the rare day that I'm not angry about Donald Trump because I feel like finally – there are other people who are now angry about the consistent illegalities committed by the president of the United States. Um, whether or not that will result in any kind of change is, is anyone's guess. But at least people seem to care right now. The media, he's, Trump has been unable to like get the media off the story, which is rare for him. So I'm enjoying that. Um, and so instead, I want to talk about something that the media is not covering. Okay. I don't know how much of our listeners have been following the Amber Geiger trial. Mm -hmm. um, but Amber Geiger is the cop who, while off duty, shot and killed her neighbor. Um, she alleges that uh, she accidentally walked into the wrong apartment, saw a strange black man there, and shot him two times in the chest, killing him after he came at her. Everybody else says the black man was sitting alone in his apartment um, on his couch watching his TV, eating his ice cream. Um, and this woman walked into his apartment and shot her. What's up with that? So um, last week she was, or I guess two weeks ago by the time you listen to this, um, she was convicted of murder. Um, she got 10 years, um, which is a light sentence, but I don't want to go into that because it gets us into over-incarceration issues. Right, which, I, I, yeah. yeah a, I, I, a conviction and sentence at all is probably A white important. cop was convicted for murder, for yeah. killing a black man. I will take that to the bank. I'm not going to worry too much about the the heftiness of her sentence but afterwards one of the key witnesses in the trial was uh, uh botham jeans the, the black man who was killed um neighbor joshua brown uh he was uh lived down the hall from gene he allegedly he testified that he heard what he believed was a surprise meeting um of two people and then seconds later gunshots um, the cop, Amber Geiger, had argued that she had shouted, hands up, hands up. Um, Joshua Brown testified that he didn't hear anything like that um, and that there wasn't enough time for basically Amber Geiger's story to check out, um, which is uh, people think is the main reason why uh, she was eventually convicted. L Josh Brown turned up dead last week. Mm -hmm. Initial reports say that he was shot in the chest and the mouth. Huh. Isn't that a well-known mobland sign for Signal somebody who yes somebody who, uh, who maybe a, spoke out of turn yes um so he was shot interesting and, so he was shot and killed uh the key witness in the conviction of a cop was shot and killed this raises questions the mayor of dallas uh where this all went down urged people not to jump to conclusions and for a good day, I held my fire both on Twitter and, and all through social media, kind of waiting to see how the police were going to explain this uh, situation. 
And then the police story came out. According to the police, Joshua Brown was involved in a, quote, drug deal gone bad that involved, uh, remember, Brown lived in Dallas. This, according to the cops, um, three suspects drove from Louisiana all the way to Dallas, about a four-hour drive, to either buy or sell drugs to Mr. Brown. The deal went wrong somehow, and Brown ended up dead. Folks, that is not what happened. Yeah, the the more important you you skipped over the only actually important part of this whole this whole tale. And it, it strikes me there there's a joke that I have, which an in joke that's long, whatever, but about ridiculous situations where you're like, oh, you're listening to somebody tell the story and then they say the dumb thing and they go, you know, actually now that I hear it myself out loud, I see what the problem is. What part of this story that when the cops told it, you're like, oh. Well, now that you say, now that I hear myself saying it out loud, this doesn't make any sense. It's the part where they argue; they're arguing. How do they know it's a drug deal? That well, how do they know it's a drug deal? Because according to the cops, they left the the after the deal went bad, they left the weed and the money behind. Yeah, when you say that out loud, that's where the story starts to fall <laughs> apart, doesn't it? Right? You're gonna drive four hours from Louisiana to Dallas to buy drugs. Shoot the man who was selling you the drugs. Leave the drugs and the money that you arguably brought to the party behind. That I, I assume after you commit an act like that, you start rethinking your life and decide that maybe drugs is not the path you want to be on. The reason why I skipped over that part of the story is because <laughs> I don't actually think that's the dumbest part of the story. Oh, oh, but it is. The dumbest part <laughs> of the story to me, and this, this goes with our, our mm-hmm. show here, if you think like a lawyer for a second, what the cops would have you believe is that the star witness for the prosecution in a cop murder trial was a drug dealer. Yeah. A. Yeah. That they rested their case on his say-so, that the fact that he was a drug dealer either did not come up or was unknown to the prosecutors during the trial, and that the defense attorneys, who again were cop lawyers mm-hmm. and a bunch of police officers also did not figure out that this man was a drug dealer and did not use his drug dealing past to impeach his credibility at trial. Folks, that didn't happen. Sorry. That is not what happened. There is no freaking way that you can be moving the kind of product that it would require to make it worth it to somebody to drive four hours to hook you up. And somehow, none of the police, none of the prosecution, none of the defense attorneys ever figure that out during your high-profile murder trial, of which you are a star witness. So, I don't know what happened. Again, I have my speculations and thoughts, but what the cops say happened did not happen. Yeah, uh, it, uh, it's just... Like it, when I When I read the original explanation, and the question is, well, how did you know he's a drug dealer... Oh, because of all the drugs that were left and money that was left behind. I was like, now do you hear yourself? Do you, have you thought this through? Because I'm not Nancy Drew, but that <laughs> that's one of those clues that, I mean. There's a good Dave Chappelle skit where he's playing a cop who's framing black people. And the, the Chappelle cop says, just, just sprinkle some crack on them. Sprinkle, then, then people believe it. Like yeah. it, it's, it's if they just sprinkled some weed on them to yeah. make people – Instead of leaving large quantities of it and pretending that nobody would have taken that, yeah, it, it they left the money. Yeah, that it, doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah, it it was a uh, poorly conceived cover. 
The question, of course, being whether or not that was the point, whether they even cared whether or not it was a credible cover story or not. Yeah, they were just, you know, I do have worries about, like, the rush to, because the story is so obviously crap, they've arrested, at least last time I saw two people, I don't know if they found the third, they might have found the third suspect by the time you're listening to this. They've arrested people for this. They're trying to get people to confess to this thing that didn't happen. Like, that's, Dallas, Dallas Pete. The police in general and Dallas, and then what? What are we supposed to do about it? Right. That's that, that's the other place I wanted to go. Like the NAACP Legal Defense Fund has called for a federal investigation. Joshua Brown's family, his lawyer, S, a man named Esley Merritt, has called for an independent investigation. Who is independent right now in this country? Because traditionally, you would say like, okay, well, the Justice Department of Justice needs to weigh in. Have you met the Department of Justice lately? They, I mean, the people who just arrested Giuliani's two flunkies on over Ukraine stuff. That was SDNY. Well, I, I think it's Virginia, actually. But it, either way, but that is the Department of Justice. Yeah, you're, you know? yeah. you're, you're, you're like, hoping that some... There are independent people within this. I, I agree that it's a mess, but there are definitely independent federal investigations that are ongoing. You have world. to hope that that's what happens, right? Like, you have to... I mean, you, A, there needs to be an independent investigation. Mm. And then you just have to hope that the federality that, that, that gets assigned to it Right is independent Cares and not enough. just a bar flunk. Oh, absolutely. Um, but, anyway, that's yeah. not what we're talking about today. No, yeah, no. Um, what we still don't know what happened. Right, of course. Just that we know that what the police say happened didn't happen. Right, something happened. It probably wasn't people who left a bunch of stuff behind. Moving on. So we wanted to talk a little bit about in-house counsel. We don't talk about that as often as we sometimes should. It is the career path that. Many people don't get the opportunity to go down, but it's also something of a holy grail path. Everybody wants that cushy in-house job. Not that all of them are as cushy as I think a lot of people imagine them to be, but nonetheless, it's what people dream of. So as a person who is married to an in-house counsel, there you go. I will say that it is not a cushy job. It's just cushy when compared to the awful, terrible grind that is being a big law right. senior associate or, or a junior partner. Yeah, I mean, th that's probably fair, too. So we want to talk. There's a new report out that uh, Xtero, ACEDS, and In the House just put out. Uh, they have an annual in-house legal benchmarking report. Uh, and there were some interesting takeaways they they have a lot of data points that they compile every year uh, for this report, and we wanted to take a little bit of time talking about what's going on in the in-house counsel world. One of the biggest things about being an in-house counsel is you have one client, in theory. You, your job is to protect your company against all, you know, all threats, foreign and domestic. And with that, one of the biggest issues facing in-house counsel right now are privacy laws, one would assume. While there was a lot of hype about GDPR, eh, I, some of us, I, I will certainly say I thought a lot of it was overblown. Uh, not that it's not an important thing, but I think there was a, a hype machine behind how earth-shattering GDPR would be, the European privacy rules that kind of flopped. And I, I fear almost that it flopped so badly that people are ignoring the real importance of getting companies in compliance with rules, not just GDPR, but California also has a new privacy rule. And there's, you know, there's a patchwork of privacy laws around. Uh, there's some noise about making a federal standard. 
so when asked, um, and, and if you you should check out the story on Above the Laws, written by Joe. Um, when asked how concerned they were about new privacy laws, including um, the new California Consumer Privacy Act, 68% of in-house legal department respondents said that they were either not concerned or only somewhat concerned with the new laws. Yeah. Which seems like a problem, right, Joe? It seems like maybe they're not taking it seriously enough. Well, right. I mean, that, that certainly seemed – well, it can mean one of two things. It can mean that they're not taking seriously enough or that they feel – very confident in what they're going to do about it. The problem is that this same survey turned up that 84% have, quote, no clearly defined processes to meet new and emerging privacy regulations. Those two shouldn't go together <laughs> from the same body of respondents. I don't know what it is. Is it is it like the football coach telling the team we're going to win and then telling the media – you know, I mean, this is a real challenge for us this week. I don't know. But these two things should not go together. And squaring these is a real issue. And I don't quite know what what in-house counsel are doing and whether or not it's that they feel they have to put on a brave face. I, I don't get it. See, there are two – I mean, we're talking about compliance lawyers and in-house counsel. And that's that's mm -hmm. a, that's only one kind of aspect of being an in-house counsel. Like, you know, for instance, yeah. again, I was saying – I'm married to one. My wife is not a compliance lawyer. She would never have to worry about any of this stuff, right? But if you're specifically talking about compliance people, if you're a compliance person who is not worried about compliance, that strikes me as odd. Now, what we do know is that compliance people tend to have two, two gears, basically. One is gear one, where they kind of wake up at 9 o'clock in the morning and, 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 and start in is this gear of like, okay, here's my checklist, right? The company is going to want to do eight things. I have to make sure that all eight thing of those things are basically legal, right? Like I have to make sure that nobody goes to jail in the company on my watch about these eight things, right? Gear two is a ninth thing has happened, a tenth thing, you know, something that I did not expect has happened. And it's a big deal. At which point the good compliance lawyer calls up the GC who then calls up outside counsel. And says, we got a real problem, right? Like, we don't expect compliance people to actually kind of take first cut at serious kind of litigation issues coming into their companies, right? We we farm that out to well, – that's why big law gets paid the big bucks, right? Well, except uh, that's a good transition point, which is the trend over the last several years, which this – which this survey shows is continuing is the massive in-housing of these sorts of these sorts of jobs. Exactly. Yeah. So we are moving into a world where compliance people are supposed to do more and more and more stuff, stuff that traditionally had been farmed out because it's a cost savings for the company and blah, 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 blah. But then you read this report and you're like, well, well then are, are you doing it then? Like if we're, if we're no longer going to say, okay, we've got some privacy concerns, let's contract with outside counsel to rewrite our privacy rules. When I was, you know, when I was working in big law, one of our one of our big clients was one of the major sports leagues, and uh -huh. you know, one of the things that we did at our firm was that every shout time, out to professional lacrosse, um, <laughs> highlight baby. Yeah. Um, one of the things that we did at at my firm that I got to participate in was, you know, every time the privacy laws would change, they would farm it out to us and. We, me, a low-level associate at a big law firm, would be kind of in charge of like making sure that they're, you know, 
e-store website was in compliance with the right. new privacy rules and, and whatever. That was a that was a kind of classic big law young associate job 15 years ago. Yeah. Now, allegedly, these jobs are being pushed in-house. They're not calling my old firm to do that work. They're doing it on their own steam. Except from this report, it looks like they're not doing it. I mean, yeah, it seems as though they're confident it's going to work out, but they do not have any plan for it, which is problematic. I mean, one would think that a process could be created where they get one memo from uh, outside counsel once and then take it upon themselves to make sure everything complies with that those parameters rather than farming out every question. That might be how they intend to do it. And maybe that's the answer here. They're saying, well, we don't have a plan, but we're confident – we're going to get our memo and then we'll be able to handle i don't know whatever it is it was a it was a jarring set of stats to have right next to each other the other issue here and i say this you know, clients are not usually listening to this show unfortunately but the other aspect here is the fact that clients even if you only have one client don't really you know business people don't really understand what lawyers do and don't really understand the just raw man hours it takes to get some of the stuff Done. If yeah. you are a multinational corporation with e-stores and websites and Amazon links and PayPal links all throughout your business to sell whatever it is you sell, making all of those websites, making all of those links, making all of those consumer-facing products that you have work in compliance with rapidly changing privacy laws is not a one-person job. It's not just like, oh, you're a lawyer, fix that. It takes like significant amount of man hours for lawyers who are able to like go in, look at all of these sites, come up with both general templates to apply to all of them, but then tweak those templates in the specifics of whatever particular store or whatever particular country um, you happen to be operating uh, under um, in that situation. That just takes a lot of like raw time. And yeah. I don't know that clients always understand that, like, just because you're a lawyer and you've figured out a potential solution to a problem, actually implementing that problem, it's uh, impl implementing that solution itself mm -hmm. is sometimes hundreds of hours of work yeah. that yeah. they have to pay for. Yeah. Attorney hours, because um, I, I think we let the women do that work now, too. But still, no, your point is is huh. true. And because it's not man hours and hasn't been for a long time. But yeah, but still, that's true. But I think this is a transition point to another aspect of this and yet another and another story is there's also when you're in house, you talk about so those of us who've never been in house, uh, we we imagine the job being a glorified supervisor whose job is to tell a bunch of law firms to go do stuff and uh, pay bills. Unfortunately, that actually costs a lot of money, too, and takes a lot of time, too. And one aspect that we overlook is the budgetary pressures upon companies when they have law firms here and there and a different one here and a different one there. When you're managing 30, 40 different law firms to do stuff, that takes time and money, too. Also, when you're in different jurisdictions doing all of that, which one aspect of the last several years has been the moving from the old school Mad Men era of 
you know, all of our work goes to Dewey Cheatham and Howe, whatever the law firm is. That's broken down, and we've talked about the kind of democratization of that as companies hire more and more different firms and the effects of that in that the big firms have continued to make a lot of money and the boutiques have now started becoming niche practitioners who get a lot of jobs and the middle has kind of had a problem. And that proliferation, though, appears to be scaling back. One aspect of this survey was that a lot of these companies are starting to pull back on the number of different counsel they employ for the same reasons that it becomes costly. One aspect that I haven't written this story but is worth talking about, I spoke with at a event with a company whose job is with a product that they put out is something to allow firms to comply with the ever-increasing bureaucracy of different companies. Different companies have different mandates, like the bill has to be this. Oh, the bill has to have these details, not these details. You can only bill in these kind of increments, not these kind of increments. All of that is time and money on the firm side, but it's also time and money on the weird bureaucracy creating side. It just creates mm -hmm. more work for them. And creating a world in which they have fewer and fewer firms doing this work is helpful to them. More and more people that they work with who don't screw up on the first pass of creating a bill. That's an interesting turn because we broke down this kind of monolithic everybody works with one firm model and split it out. And now it seems to be coalescing like a solar system after a cataclysm, like the, the, the disk is accreting again. Do you think that that trend benefits big law firms or do you think that it, it will help some of the kind of mid-sized firms get back in the game? You know, it's an interesting question. I didn't really know where it would help. Uh, I thought it would probably help in the firms. By firms, I mean companies. So let me make this two different things. As I'm talking, <laughs> I'm talking economist stuff. Companies, I think, will move toward having one or two big firms and then a bunch of niche firms here and there to make this work, rather than have a bunch of big firms and a bunch of they'll pick their spots. But I had a very interesting conversation with Joe Andrew from the chairman of Denton's the other day talking about they brought on a few new small firms uh, yeah, into Denton's their model. Yeah, Denton's has been – you want to talk about like accreting in the solar system. Yeah. Like Denton's, Denton's is calling gravity upon itself. Yeah, a, a massively growing over the last several years firm, but also a firm that makes this growth in a different way. As opposed to the typical system of we threw an office somewhere and that office's job is to more or less throw work back to headquarters, they actually – I'll just use the, the most recent mergers, tie-up, acquisition, whatever it is. To use those models, the way they did it was a dual partnership model where the firms that they – tied up with, continue to exist as the firms they always were, basically, with the word Denton's thrown into it. And they will also be, while partners of their own firm, locally owned, they will also be partners of the Denton's overarching uh, setup, this kind of dual partnership model, which in their mind allows the firms to maintain their local ownership. And this is something that is important to them, and you see it in their recent agreements in both Korea and across Africa. They brought on five African firms, all of which are not, hey, somebody from the New York office, you're now moving to Seoul. They were instead locally owned Korean firms that continue to be locally owned, but 
those folks are also partners of the overarching thing. What's and, the advantage of doing it that way? And the argument that they had that Joe Andrew made, which I think is compelling in the light of this in-house discussion, was these clients aren't necessarily all in New York or wherever. They're spread out, and they want to go to the people they know. They want to go, and the people they know are the people who are going to understand the communities and what's going on and be able to get the work. They know what's happening. There's talent there as well as community knowledge, and those folks are who an in-house counsel really wants to work with. That's somebody they know. And it's more like the big four model. PwC is global, bigger than all of these law firms. It still has offices in Podunk City somewhere. Uh, that probably sounded bad towards those cities. Hasey City somewhere. Flyover cities. Yeah. No, but whatever. <laughs> it's It has agents in some of these smaller markets. And that's not because... You know, PwC doesn't get it that it's really about the big places. No, they understand it's important to have a local presence if they're going to get the accounting work, business consulting work, all the professional services that they provide. Denton's logic is if every other professional service is being run this way, it's silly that we in law don't consider us consider ourselves better than that. We aren't. We should be looking towards a situation where we empower local lawyers within the structure to be able to make those individual connections and then make those connections much as a PwC or any other of those companies would say, yeah, I'm the person running your thing, but I can leverage folks all over the world if needed. And, you know, when you listen to this setup, it really makes a lot of sense, especially in light of these in-house counsel trying to cut back on the number of firms they want to have. What it reminds me of is just, and it's something that I think people who, who aren't in the in-house game or, or who are, or aren't in the legal game and trying to figure out how everything actually like fits together and works. What it reminds me of is never forget how ancestral is not quite the right word but mm -hmm. how you know how closed the legal community really is right mm -hmm. if you can imagine like a fortune 500 company trying to figure out uh you know it's going to buy new uh cars for all of its employees let's say right mm -hmm. you would imagine that the massive company would go to ford and go to gm and go to toyota and like cross compare and figure out what who's going to give them the best you can imagine like the the fortune 500 company doing all of these things to buy even a perk for their employees, right? But when it comes to the law firms they use, it's not some kind of like nationwide search for the best law firm at blah, blah, blah. It comes down to like, well, we hire this in-house counsel for whatever reason we hire outside, person, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and then that in-house counsel, that that GC knows, oh, you know. Oh, I see. What right, that GC that, that this Fortune 500 company hired knows like, eight lawyers and yeah. four of those lawyers work for that firm. So now this fortune 500 company has like 50% of its legal work going to one particular big law firm because the GC knows the, well, well I mean that was right, certainly it, the old model, right? It's, it seems, which, it seems so uh, it's so networking based as opposed to kind of an, any kind of real objective analysis of who's doing the best, what, where, well, that was, that was certainly the old model. And I think that that has broken down that, We've seen over the last 15, 20 years or so, that has really broken down. And those relationships, partially because legal departments got bigger, there's more people moving around, and there's a 
there's a better flow of information. So a lot of those relationships broke down, and we have been kind of talking about it in the lines of, oh, those days are over. It's not about that kind of networking. It's more objective. Your costs, your return on investment, they've got data up the wazoo. They can tell, whatever. This argument that Denton's is banking on and what this survey kind of suggests they might be right about is that the networking that broke down was the nonsensical networking of, I don't know, I've heard of Cravath. That kind of networking has broken down. What hasn't broken down, is though, that local, is, the local is somebody who can actually tell you, oh, I understand what you do. A factoid that uh, I heard that is, you know, intellectually you know is true, but then when you hear it, you're like, oh, wow. America in particular, and this is true all over the world in different places to different levels. But say in the UK... 70% of the major British companies are headquartered in London. That's obviously what happens. In the U.S., you take the Russell 3000 or whatever, 7% are in New York. There are major companies everywhere. I was in Lexington, Kentucky the other day, and I, was, I passed a building uh, for the printer company, Lexmark, and I was like, oh, I'll bet that's because they're from here. I've never <laughs> known that. But that's the thing. A major company that you interact with whenever you printed things back in the day, you didn't necessarily know where they were from. And that's that's where understanding the local challenges, especially when, yeah, if you're doing an IPO, you probably want somebody in New York. But companies face challenges that are much more local to them. Real estate deals, zoning issues, so on and so forth, which – You'd want somebody who understood what was going on there. Uh, mergers, tie-up, supply chain deals, people who understand but the area. Isn't that – but to, to push back a little bit on the Denton's yeah. model, isn't that what we used to just call local council? Right, and that's the issue. Local council, though, was when those folks hire – the central metropole right. in, this, in this example, New York, hires somebody whose job is to have no thoughts but to sign a document and put it – and hand it to the court. That's not a particularly effective model from a strategizing perspective. And moreover, you know what it does for the in-house counsel? Adds a layer. Now you're paying another – you've got another mouth to feed. You're not paying <laughs> the person who's doing your work for you. You're paying somebody to hire another person to do work for you. You cut out that kind of – the retail model there, and you're going wholesale mm. in this sort of, sort of setup. Which, for companies who are increasingly nervous about how their spend is, that makes some sense. Uh, I don't know how it's going to necessarily turn out, but I certainly, after chatting about these mergers with him, and then having seen this study the day before, in my head it all kind of clicked together that you can't really argue that this isn't reflecting where in-house counsel at least see themselves right now. Absolutely. Yeah. Check out the story in Above the Law. It's 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 really interesting because it, as we've been trying to talk about, like it challenges some of our assumptions as to what in-house counselor people are thinking um, or feeling, and certainly it challenges the assumption that they give a shit about privacy because Jesus Christ. And yeah, and there's a link there to download the uh, actual report too, if you want to get into the details and don't necessarily want to take my analysis for it. Uh, and there's a lot more data points in the actual report that I didn't even get to. All right. 
So with all that said, I think we're done. You should be listening to this, which you are, which is great. But don't stop there. You should subscribe. You should give it reviews. It helps us move up the chain of command in the search for a legal podcast. You should be reading above the law. You should be, you know, interacting with us. Uh, he's at L-E-N-Y-C. I'm at Joseph Patrice. If you have any questions you want us to potentially talk about, by all means, write them to tips at com. You can say, you know, thinking like a lawyer mailbag or something, and we always are interested in potentially having some material to discuss that with. You should also listen to The Jabot, which is Catherine Rubino's podcast, also of the Above Law Network of shows, I guess, which is all part of the Legal Talk Network, which also has a series of shows that don't involve any of us above the law people, but you should be listening to those offerings as well. And with all that, I think we're done. You guys have a nice one. All right. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.